this series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The facts that will be presented are true. Scientists representing the world's foremost research centers took part in the examination of the evidence. I'm Chad. And together, we're a pair of normal guys. Yeah, we, we sure are. As no, well, you say every show you act like we're not. Well, I mean... As soon as I say we're pair of normal guys, you say, well, I, I don't know. Well, not by media standards, we're not. But as far as normal goes, I think we are. Blood work, I mean, biology, no, no sure. S- we don't go out and do stabbings and... Well, not lately. I think that's becoming the norm, though. Stabbings? Yeah, stabbings. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. So, uh, anything going on with you uh, this week there, Chad? Uh, well, I'd love to say yes, but no, I'm just getting uh, all uh, ready for the uh, Mothman VIP this next month. And right. Getting ready for the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, but uh, other than that, nothing other than regular work and just regular house stuff, not really. Right. Yeah, nothing really here. Shockwave. <laughs> Nothing really here either. Yeah. Uh, so uh I think we should probably get right on into the show. This I think week. we should. I think we should. People are waiting with bated breath because I know last week uh, or last show was, was out a few days late. So mm-hmm. we owe it to the Pongite Nation. And this is a very exciting show that we're going to be doing today. It is. It we is. kind of alluded to it in the last show a little bit. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately. <laughs> Once again, you'll have to go without your Paro news stories for this show. No, no. But they'll be back. This uh, this show is going to be our in honor of the uh, anniversary for Patterson-Gimlin this year. I think we're going to make this one our Bigfoot buffet. Sasquatch smorgasbord. There you go. And today we're going to be speaking with a very special guest. Who's that, Chad? Our guest is going to be Gene St. Jean. He's a musician, sculptor. He began his career sculpting preschool toys and dolls, but later he joined the McFarland team. But now he has his own studio, Gene St. Jean Studios. He works on several projects for Diamond Select. He's a sculptor designer for Creature Replica, and he's extremely well-versed in Native American culture and history with Sasquatch and unknown hominids. He's the Picasso of unknown primates. It's Gene St. Jean. Hello, Gene. Nice intro, guy. (laughs) Thank you. So how are you, sir? I'm doing good. I mean, I'm mostly uh, just trying to stay on top of all the stuff that I have coming up for uh, San Diego Comic-Con for Diamond Collect and uh, some new creature replica things and finishing up that Mothman statue for the Kickstarter. Yeah, it's very exciting. We're looking forward to getting that. We're going to the Mothman VIP and can't wait to get that and put it up in the studio. And then we'll, uh, I guess we'll get to see you guys when we're at the... Uh, the Ohio Bigfoot Conference. Yeah, yeah, it was touch and go. I uh, finally pulled together the cash to get the plane ticket a couple of weeks ago, so uh, it'll be cool. I haven't been there in a few years, actually. Um, my first time was probably about three years ago, I think, Yeah. to go to the OBC, so I'm pretty psyched to get out there again. It's pretty cool. Did you uh, find anything that you just had never heard of before or anything that was just totally blew your mind when you went? Um. No, not really, because um, I've been into this stuff a while, so there wasn't anything there that really surprised me, per se, but um, it was it was cool to meet, like, a lot of podcasters and stuff. I'd listened to their shows for a long time, and uh, 
and just people in general from the community who I think are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was that was pretty great, you know. I met Bob Gimlin there. That was cool, you know. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's neat to kind of put a real person to kind of like the name or someone you've maybe talked to a couple times on Facebook or whatnot, you know. And also, it's cool to get a read in person on people that have stories and things like that, you know. <laughs> Obviously, with the this whole phenomenon. 99% of it is, you know, first and second person accounts and third person accounts, things like that in terms of, there's not exactly a dearth of hard, hard evidence for this, mm-hmm. you know, pretty, plenty of evidence, but not, not much in the way of proof other than, you know, the uh, certain percentage of foot path tracks, you know, and certainly, you know, how many, other than Jeff Meldrum, who's really qualified to uh, comment on the veracity of those, you know, he's the only person who really understands the underlying anatomy and things that would make one track more legit than another track. So for the average enthusiast, you know, I would say probably most people wouldn't be able to tell a difference between a human track and a bear track out in the field anyway, you know, yeah. let alone differentiating between some random indentation in the mud that someone wants to believe is a foot path track, you know, a foot track, you know, so, so it's nice to talk to people in person who have stories and then, you know, you're kind of, you can tell whether your crap meter goes off the scale or not, you know, or or whether they sound legit. I mean, you can tell, you listen to some people who like some of the guys, we won't get into specific names, but, you know, some of the guys who claim they've like killed Bigfoots and things like that, and you could tell they're full of it from day one. So, one of the things I've been wanting to ask you, Gene, that I was thinking about, especially after our, our uh, last conversation with the uh, creature replica, <laughs> and you know the the fact that you've been into this for so long and you're so knowledgeable, and you've designed these these figures, of course, based off of some of the stuff that you've researched and, you know, have you ever thought about presenting at anything like the Ohio Bigfoot conference? You ever thought about just getting up and talking about the figures and talking about what you know, and just bringing up some questions that maybe you haven't heard somebody else bring up before. Um, yeah, I've thought about it. I don't know. I don't know how well it'd be received. I mean, you know how the community is. It kind of tends to be, they sort of like to develop, um, cult of personality kind of thing uh-huh. around people who are sort of pseudo celebrities. So I don't know. I mean, I guess as we get more established, maybe that opportunity will crop up. You know, I do stuff like that, uh, like New York Comic Con, the San Diego Comic Con, because it's a little more, a little more in line. You know, so I can talk about creature replica and all my Bigfoot nonsense there, and it applies to the toys. Gotcha. You know, whereas something like this, it's a little different because I am strictly a you know, an armchair, one of the dreaded armchair researchers with a lot of opinions and uh, no experience in the field. Yeah. So, you know, I know that uh, in general, people hate people like that, but, you know. Well. Uh, but, you know, the way I always feel about it is like, look, all these people that have these grandiose claims, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not an unbeliever. I think that the, the prospect of the creature existing is good. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you can take any of these skeptical uh, positions about lack of the appropriate environment as far as uh, food sources and stuff, and you can throw them right out, you know, because those environments are there, depending on where you're talking about. I mean, I don't believe that these things exist all over the United States. And one of the biggest problems that any researcher faces is that someone who makes a claim or wants to make a claim, all they have to do is go on the internet and you could check off about 10 different things that are sort of standardized expectations for uh, some sort of a Bigfoot encounter. Mm-hmm. And you can sound, you can pretty much sound legit as long as it, you can kind of sell it. So, I mean, it's a kind of a difficult thing to kind of, kind of put a beat on, but I mean, I think there's, I think there's a good possibility for them existing. It's just, the people that make a lot of claims, it's like, it's the old, it's that old uh, acorn, you know, ex- extraordinary claims re- require extraordinary evidence. Yeah. You know, if you're going to tell me that you saw an eight foot, you know, eight man, I'm not going to say, you know, you're full of crap. 
because I don't know. I wasn't there. I, I just assume that if someone's telling me something, that they're not lying to me. But by the same token, if you want to want me to take that next step, then you're going to have to corroborate that in some way. Yeah. You know, for instance, if you saw something, if you saw something, did you find, you know, a trail marked by like, you know, the uh, tree twist say, not that I necessarily buy into that, but did you find that? Do you have photographs of footprints, not just one footprint, a series, you know, a trackway say, what other things did you find? Were you able to make any recordings? And of course, you know, the photography thing, that's ideal. But if, if anyone you know who has kids or like occasionally I'll try to take a picture of my cat, yeah, the cat never stays in the same place. <laughs> yeah. In that pose that you liked, by the time you pull out your phone, the thing goes to the photography thing, click on, she's already out of the room, you know? So, I mean, I can see why people can't get necessarily a good picture of something like this this cagey acting as it is in thick forest, mm-hmm. you know, where you see like maybe a snippet of them walking through. I mean, so, but by the same token, I just can't believe everything people talk about. I mean, obviously probably like you guys, I'm signed up on all these different Facebook pages for paranormal stuff, and Bigfoot stuff and whatnot. 99% of it are ridiculous, like, blurry shots of things. There's a couple guys, they post stuff almost every single day that are, like, headshots of Dogman, headshots of Bigfoot. And it's like, it's like taking an ink blot and <clears throat> putting a thumbprint on a photograph. Yeah. And, and if that isn't ridiculous enough, there are, like, like two dozen people will post underneath it. They're like, oh, dude, great, you know, great research. <laughs> and it's like, what the hell are these people thinking? Yeah, they you zoom know, in and circulate, and you're still not seeing anything. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, and anything that's even halfway interesting, I, I um, just drag and drop it onto my desktop, stick it in Photoshop, and lighten it. You can immediately tell, you know, the quality's not there, but you can immediately tell what is or isn't there. You know, like these red eye shots and like head silhouettes of the, you know, alleged tree peaker type behavior and things like that. And I don't know. It's just, I find a lot more, I, I get a lot more interested in um, older reports, stuff like, you know, things really old stuff like the William Rowe report and stuff where he describes the creature, which was a lot like what Patterson ended up describing Patty as, mm-hmm. you know, but also the thing that I found was really interesting about his report is him describing the, creatures stripping the leaves off a branch kind of like the way an orangutan yeah eats leaves off a branch or a gorilla like they kind of run their teeth over it and then kind of strip it with their lips i mean that description always stuck with me you know and that was back before hundreds of people were posting bigfoot reports every 15 minutes on the internet you know and bigfoot's hiding under mushrooms and bathing and living in caves and all sorts of crackpot you know guardians and portal nonsense I mean, that's an old report. I mean, that that old dude could have been nuts too. But then you also go back to the fact that when John Green was taking some of these reports, he was having guys like Roe sign affidavits in a court, you know, to, you know, kind of at least, I don't know how you'd uh, enforce something like that if someone was pulling your leg, but the person at least went before some sort of magistrate and took a note to the veracity of their claim. Yeah, exactly. There's there's none of that today. I mean, how many research guys do you guys know where they drive a couple hours, get somewhere, spend a few days there, and find out that the person was just jerking them around? There's a lot of that stuff. It's a tough field, but despite all of the negative aspects to it, and like I said, I mean, I believe like 99% of the stuff out there is complete crap. Mm -hmm. But that 1% is what keeps me engaged, you know, but very little of it has to do with modern reports. I mean, I'm like you alluded to earlier, I'm very interested in Native American culture as it specifically as it relates to this topic. I mean, I, sure, I don't know if you guys have ever read uh, Kathy Strain's book, Giant Cannibals and Monsters. It specifically um, documents North American tribes and their 
uh, folkloric interactions with Sasquatch and the various names of the creatures. It gets into all the uh, how some of the tribes had uh, a good relationship with the creature, like they would actually trade with them, or at the very least, they would leave them offerings of food so they wouldn't trash their nest in retaliation. Some of the tribes, the creatures would come out of the hills at night and steal children or women. You know, there's a whole broad range of interactions, and that's the stuff I find very interesting. You know, despite the fact that Native American tradition, there's a lot of animals that have sort of a dual, kind of a dual identity. They can be, they can be physical creatures, and at the same time, they have sort of a, um, a spiritual aspect to them as well, you know, things like coyote and uh, some of you know, the eagle, you know, you have a lot of things that cross over into that ethereal plane. Bigfoot is one of those as well, you know, so you don't know whether that he could maybe necessarily be a completely spiritual representation to him, the whole Bigfoot, you know, uh, as forest brother or forest god type thing, you know, an elemental kind of a swamp thing type thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, so those things really interest me. And then some of the some of the older books too. A lot of the newer books, aside from Taffy's book, it's another modern book I really I like Melvin's book a lot, uh, Legend of Science. Yeah. And yeah. also, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with John Quisar. He did a lot of research into the Bermuda Triangle. He does he's working on books on like the Zodiac and the Iran. Uh, serial rapists and things, but he also did a book called uh, Recasting Bigfoot. And I had first heard about his book on another podcast, maybe like five, six years ago, before he had released it. And uh, his take on the subject was just so original and interesting that it basically was one of the things that really sucked me back into the subject wholeheartedly because he sort of, as a jumping off point, he took the... Uh, the Loisiate and um, that highly contested photograph, probably is mu- probably the most contested photograph other than the Patterson film, you know, and it's that, if you know, what I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but it's a picture of that thing that basically looks like a spider monkey sitting on a crate. Yeah. Up with a stick. With a stick. Yeah. Yeah. Now the guys that had taken that picture, they were, they were working for an oil company, in, uh, and they were in South America. I can't remember the exact country, but they were scouting for oil sites, I guess. And during their trek, it, you know, obviously, in the, this was in the 1800s, so those type of expeditions, you'd lose people along the way. And apparently, through different mishaps and starvation and everything, they had lost almost everybody in their, in their uh, expedition, except for a few guys. And supposedly... Two of these, like, ape-sized spider monkey-ish looking things attacked the remainder of their group, and they shot them. So, like, they weren't in any condition to haul back either creature or, like, bits of these creatures. So they took this photograph, popped them up on an oil crate, and uh, used that as a reference point for height. The, the photo was pretty much thrown out by most everyone, particularly scientists, except for this one scientist, like, who's an anthropologist, his name was like Montanand or something like that, I'm getting the name right. And he, he was one of the only ones that uh, believed it. But at any rate, that sort of became part of a jumping off point for with the art book. And his theory was that some of these creatures, he also puts forth that there may be different phenotypes of these creatures. Uh, you know how in a lot of reports, if you put any any belief in modern reports, you get people who describe creatures that are more human-looking, mm-hmm. some that are more monkey-ish. You have reports of things that are like, uh, what do they call them, like uh, devil monkeys, things like devil, that. Yeah. A wide range, yeah, a wide range of physiognomia, like faces and bodies and stuff. And his theory, one of the aspect of this theory is that um, some of these creatures actually migrated up from South America into the into North America. And that's what some of the creatures like the Spookum are. And then there's other, some of the other types of creatures like the, um, the Pacific Northwest, like Sasquatch, similar to Patty, 
although he doesn't believe that the PGF film is legit at all. Some of these creatures may have migrated down from the north, you know, from Canada, and uh, some came up from the south. So you get sort of a melange of different um, physical types, which, you know, is, I love the, I love the concept of it, and it certainly fuels what I do with the toy company. But the prop, you know, it's again, you got to look at all this stuff through a skeptical eye. And as I look at that, if you have all these differing breeds or whatever of this undiscovered ape or proto human or whatever it is, how can all of them be so freaking smart that no one catches a clear picture? You know, that's the, that ends up being the, the classic kind of problem with all of it right and that's uh you know one thing i've always i think chad and i talked about this last show actually was that's kind of what i've always thought is like we were talking just a second ago with all the different you know pacific northwest you have the classic sasquatch in the south there's the skunk ape australia has a yowie you know nepal has a yeti i've always been along the thinking of well you know if humans evolved you know from a common ancestor and it just changed according to geographical region why couldn't that have happened with gigantopithecus or whatever whatever you want to call a common ancestor a bigfoot would have and that's how we ended up with all these different you know they're they're slightly different but they're all sort of the same kind of deal it just depends on where you are is what it is right yeah exactly the the main branches of humanity depending on where they ended up in different continents, you have a variety of racial types right. that are, you know, genetically we're all pretty much the same, but um, you have facial features that vary widely and not just between individuals, but between races. And then also pigmentation differences from continent to continent. And uh, that's before you even get into all the cultural differences that develop because of you know, the land you live on and things like that and cultures kind of growing independently. Right. So, yeah, it's like I mean, they're all you, that kind of, they're all, if you want to just lump one term onto it, they're all Bigfoot. But, you know, oh, well, these are tend to be a little taller. These are a little shorter. These have black hair. These have reddish. And just depending on where they yeah. ended up and that's where they evolved to their environment, that's why you have a skunk ape versus a Sasquatch versus a Yowie. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one of my favorite one of my favorite books as an overview of this topic is Ivan Sanderson's um, Abominable Snowman Come to Life because he goes through all these different types of ape men or relic hominids, whatever you want to call them, extant ape species all over the world. And it's really it's just such an engaging book. I've read it like three times. So I think his book's probably my absolute favorite on the topic, and John Glissard's is probably a close second because it really got me back into this whole thing. But also, and again, as a critique at, to the community in general, I don't think a lot of people really research the history on this stuff. I've actually, I talked to a lot of people within, you know, this field of interest, and. Uh, I spoke to one person one time who had, I forget what it was. She posted something about something she was interested in. So I list, listed a couple of books that would have specifically, you know, kind of point her in the right direction. And, you know, you, know, you don't want to sound like a dickweed, you know, like, oh, you should read this book kind of thing, like you're a know-it-all. But, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the most, you know, polite way. And uh, she was like, oh, well, you know, I prefer to, I prefer to experience them myself in the field. And it's like, oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> I mean, and, and yeah, and it's, you know, like I said, I try to, I try to be open-minded, so I'm not going to go right to nut job or liar. <laughs> so, you know, just playing devil's advocate, I said, uh, I said, oh, so, oh, so cool. So you must have some pretty interesting experiences out in the field, you know, have you had, you know, first person fighting, whatnot? She's like, oh, no, no, but I, uh, I found a footprint once. So she posted a picture of a muddy hole in the ground. <laughs> and that's <laughs> how she communicated with them in the one of person to person. <laughs> and that, you know, so I think 
there's a, I think the problem is that, uh, well, there's a lot of problems. But, you know, like any field of interest that is on the fringes of science, especially, where there's no kind of, uh, there's nothing kind of tying it together with any kind of rule book. You have a lot of people that are basically out in the forest trying to do the best they can to adhere to some sort of quasi-scientific method as they understand it. And what they pick up from like guys like Todd Bissettel and Jeff Meldrum and a few other guys. And then you have a bunch of people that are basically camping and, you know, live action role playing. You know, it's like Dungeons and Dragons in the woods. It's like every sound, every, they find, every time you see a snapped branch or a clump of bushes or two branches that fall in an X or a pile of rocks or hear a sound, it's all Sasquatch. Granted, you know, as someone who I lend some credence to the possibility, some of those things could be legit, but it can't, it's not everything. But, no way it's just every single thing you see and hear. But when you they know? tell so, you that it's a, a habituation issue where they're sharing trail mix on a stump somewhere with one of them and... Yeah. Uh, oh, I talked a, to him last night in my backyard. Yeah, <laughs> they're coming up and asking for yeah. sugar at the door. And those, it, those it kind of, <laughs> for me, as far as as far as habituation, I mean, I just got finished reading a book um, about two researchers that worked with Diane Foss in Rwanda and gorilla conservation. And they, what they did to try to help to save the gorilla population, which was being winnowed down by poaching and all, all the war and everything in that country, they actually went out and they habituated troops of gorillas. Mm-hmm. And apparently because gorillas are generally, they're pretty mellow. They respond pretty easily to being habituated by people because they're very, for the most part, pretty mellow. And they're very curious. They don't have the nasty temperament of chimpanzees. So they would habituate these groups of gorillas so that they could eventually create sort of an ecotourism thing. This is during the 70s and early 80s. And they would bring in small groups of people where they could actually go and see these gorillas from like 20 feet away. And of course, there was this whole struggle between the government and administration, which was very corrupt and, and you know, American and were uh, like United Nations conservation groups who were like people in that country, they barely have enough, you know, resources to live. And then Americans are over there telling them they should conserve animals that they barely even see themselves when what they wanted was to take over these parts where they conserved the different animals because they wanted land to farm on. Mm-hmm. So practically concerns of the survival of the people were at odds with conserving a species that only mattered to people in rich, developed countries, you know, who could afford to worry about, you know, things like that. And the difference is, is they, when they habituated, they had pictures of gorillas, they interacted with them. They would sit there, the little baby gorillas would come over and pull their hair and roll around on and all sorts of stuff. But when you look at the claims of the Sasquatch habituation groups, there's never a single fiber of evidence. And if you put them under the if you put them under the spotlight, all of a sudden they're like, Well, you know, we have pictures, but we can't share them because of this and because of that. And it's like it's a load of crap. Yeah. It's, because if one of those people had a great shot, based on the personality of most of the people that are into this, you know that if they get a blurry picture of a stump, it's on Facebook 15 minutes later. <laughs> so if they had, if <laughs> they had a killer portrait, yeah, if they had a killer shot of some Sasquatch in the woods, you know that that thing would be everywhere in a heartbeat. I don't want this to go too negative, but my impression of a lot of it is is that the community creates. They create celebrities that have accomplished nothing. And I mean, and it's just, okay, this guy's a speaker at this thing. He's a specialist on this. And it's like, what? The specialist on dog fans? Has there ever been a single shred of proof that there are nine foot werewolves in the United States or anywhere? Believe me, I'd love to believe in werewolves. But um, it's like, show me something legit and not just some crappy track that you could have done with your hand in the dirt. Now, Gene, know, or... do you think that the um, the dogman sightings that have gotten really big here lately, especially like 
in Kentucky where I live, there's been a lot land between the lakes, things like that. Do you think, and getting past the people that are just sort of, you know, like you said, full of crap when they <laughs> cite them, uh, do you think some of those sightings are just being confused with some other species of like Bigfoot or Sasquatch that they're they're seeing and they're just a misidentification? Yeah, I think I think that could be part of it. I mean, I think a lot of it, you know, I think with a lot of this cryptid stuff, a lot of it tends to be people who are desperate for attention. I think there could be legit reports where people are seeing something they think is like a dog man. And again, if you obviously this is really stretching speculation, but if you look at the broad range of apes and monkeys and you look at the facial aspects, look at like baboons. Obviously they're, you know, they have a tail and things like that, but you look at the boxy snout on a baboon, mm-hmm. and if you saw something like that that was standing on its hind legs temporarily, and say it was a species of baboon that was, you know, inordinately large, if you saw something like that standing on its hind legs, that right there, that looks like a freaking werewolf, you know? It's, you're not going to be thinking eight foot baboon, you're going to be thinking, you know, werewolf, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> Like um, throat yeah, issues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So exactly. So, so you know, oh, again, like if you if you subscribe to the idea that there's swamp apes in Florida in the southern states, that there's some other sort of type of Bigfoot in the northeast, that there's the classy patty patty physical specimen in the Pacific Northwest, that there's these different types around the country and even things that are like in the uh Caucasus mountain, something that might be akin to a Neanderthal or something at least closer to human, maybe some sort of, uh, like Meldrum likes to say, a robust Australopithecine, maybe something like that, the sexton. Then you have a whole bunch of facial characteristics and body types. So who's to say that one of them doesn't, hasn't for some reason evolved with a longer snout, you know, more like something like that, or uh, what were the, um, the apes Ketchum said were part of her fanciful genetic mix that include like seraphim and uh, what were those apes? They're from Madagascar. What are those things called? The, I, uh, you know what? I know what you're talking about, but I cannot think of the, the name right now. <laughs> lemurs. Yeah, yeah lemurs. 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 Look at the, you look at the faces of those guys. During the period of history where there were like megafauna, there was apparently, in Madagascar, there were lemurs that were the size of gorillas or something like that. Nice. You know, like five feet tall, six feet tall. And um, <laughs> when these, apparently when these, when uh, fossils of these were discovered, um, that was something that she kind of mixed into that whole melange of nonsense that she came up with. And, but if you were to look, if you overlook the fact that that island, there's no connection to any other islands, you know, it's like basically surrounded by water, which I guess that would be the definition of an island. (laughs) So, I mean, how would those physical traits end up in another, on another continent? But you could have, you do have in um, evolutionary history, you have individual pockets of parallel evolution, different things that, you know, monkeys on one continent may develop similarly on another continent just because certain types of, uh, species that development works with certain type of um, terrain and available resources, things like that. So you could have something that is another type of extant primate of a ridiculously large size that has more of a boxy snout as opposed to a flatter face like the uh, old world apes. But, right. Um, yeah, right. And I mean, to go even further, I mean, if, going back to the, you know, natural selection, evolution, and part, and everything like that, how many different species of, what was it, finch or sparrow that did Darwin find on the Galapagos that were the exact same thing, only their beak was different because they ate different things? So, you know, you could have, okay, well, this one just happened to have a different little niche that he went to, and hey, (laughs) he evolved a square boxy snout. It's like eventually those monkeys yeah. on that island that drink all the alcohol from the tourists. Eventually they'll evolve into... They're going to evolve into some sort of, I don't know, vagrant 
monkey. <laughs> Vagrant monkeys. All right. Steal booze. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I was uh, all kidding aside. I was going to ask yeah. Eugene, out of historically or modern stories, is there any one story that just sticks out to you that's become like your favorite that just is the one that either uh, really helps enforce the belief in this type of hominid or just sounds so authentic that there's no way they could possibly have ever made it up. Is there one story that really has become your favorite or has stuck out one encounter or account? Uh, I think, well, the one, one of the ones that I really like that really kind of fills in that gap between some of my interests in the native American stories and some of the more modern things is the story that, uh, that, uh, what's his name? Uh, Red, Teddy Roosevelt put in his in his book about the two trappers, mm-hmm. and they were they were trapping beaver or something like that up in these mountains that were supposedly shunned by the natives because of what they called the mountain devil. As the story goes, they they start hearing things around them and howls and stuff like that, and something keeps messing with their gear while they're out uh, checking a trap, and finally it gets so overbearing that they decide they're just going to pack their stuff and take off. So one of the guys goes to take one more run at the traps to gather them up, and he comes back and he finds his partner with his head just about twisted off. So he just grabs his stuff and he gets out of Dodge, just books. And that that story to me, I mean, that was, it's such an older story. It's not something that would have been affected by um, the all the hubbub that came up after the Bigfoot thing took off in the United States. Yeah. You know, you didn't have the influence of the Patterson Gimlin film or the uh, the guy with the footprint tracks all around his vehicles and stuff and they were they his family came forward with the uh, wooden foot cast there. Wooden cast, yeah. Um, yeah, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. So, you don't have the influence of all that modern kind of developing pop culture so that story i always thought was really cool you know it just because it talk it leans back towards the native american stories about the creatures basically they had an inordinate amount of uh respect for them but they basically steered clear of them. there are times that they they might have traded with them a little bit but it was mostly out of respect and in general they sort of avoided them as much as possible so, you know, so that story sort of fits into that mold for me. So stories and, uh, more like uh, the Ape Canyon incident, those would be a lot more plausible, something where they've just gotten in there and interfered yeah, with their yeah. environment or interfered with an individual. Yeah, the Ape Canyon one's a great story too. And even more so, like a lot of what a lot of what's never really talked about on the Ape Canyon thing is that those guys were kind of nutty spiritualist type people too. They weren't just like a bunch of miners up there looking for gold or whatever and kind of mind their own business. They had some, I can't remember the specifics, like people should go back and look that story up because they were, they had some kind of crazy ass spiritual angle on what they were doing up there too, which in some ways sort of puts the story a little bit into question for me. Because if you're talking about like a nuts and bolts, guy who lives off the land and makes that type of hard living you know maybe they'd make up campfire stories to entertain each other when they're getting wrecked at night after work but um there wouldn't be a lot of uh wouldn't be a, a lot of benefit to them to make up a lot of nonsense and come down out of the mountains with it and make a big deal about it but you know when i had read about the more spiritualist angle it sort of put it you know through the thing into question for me but nonetheless cool story if yeah. you take it completely out of context with some of the other things going on, very cool story, you know, very neat visual. And it certainly, uh, it does kind of relate to, um, you know, you, you've had Seth on your show. I, have you ever had, um, did you ever have any of the guys from the NAWC on your show, like Brian Brown or Daryl Collier or any of those not, guys? Not yet. We haven't, not yet. Yeah, you got to get one of those cats on your show. The thing that's interesting about the Ape Canyon thing is they're reporting things in their uh, area in the, the Wachita Mountains that um, do relate to that in a way. You know, they've had things where they've had stuff thrown at the 
that. And, and again, I mean, like I said, I look at a lot of modern reports with a very skeptical eye, but um, the people on that team, it's not just a bunch of nut jobs. It's like Kathy Strain and her husband, Bob, who I have a ton of respect for both of them. Kathy's, you know, an archaeologist. They have like scientists and doctors on their team and a lot of military guys, apparently, like Daryl. But um, they just don't sound like a bunch of nuts. I mean, they're, they don't sound like nuts. Maybe they're nuttier than everybody, but they went to the trouble of actually putting together that whole uh, Wichita monograph or whatever mm-hmm. it was on their site and read it. It's basically like a scientific paper on everything they've experienced. They don't come to any particular conclusion, but they're out there to actually achieve the goal of getting a specimen. Yeah, and I, I know with their group, they're, you nobody. it's not like anybody can just come up and say, hey, I want to join up and yeah. help you look for Bigfoot. It's a very yeah, long... They're not, yeah, they're not a, just a bunch of goofballs running around the woods. They're a serious group. And you can tell, I mean, they stay out of any kind of Bigfoot group interactions and things like that in general. I mean, you know, the ones who are who write books and things, like Kathy's a little more involved as far as some of that you see on shows and stuff. But a lot of the other guys, I mean, they're in the background doing the hard work, you know. So I have a lot of respect for those guys and basically follow everything that they do with a lot of interest because I, I believe – they're one of the reasons that I can believe that this stuff is legit, you know, because I look at those guys, I've talked to a few of them a few times and uh, it just doesn't come off as a bunch of people in the forest wishing Bigfoot was real, you know? And, and again, you know, I mean, the way the things I'm saying comes off is that I'm just a dick who doesn't believe in this stuff. And, you know, granted I'm and kind of a dick, but, <laughs> but uh, I do put some stock in, I do put some stock in the phenomena itself. I don't think that it's like some sort of a psychological societal pro- projection like that nonsense that, you know, skeptics try to come up with, you know, but um, there's something to it, I think, you know, but I think you have to be able to have to be able to discern between what is real, what's not real, what has, you know, like sounds in the woods. I mean, I'm, I'm no woods and I've never hunted or anything. I was I live in New Jersey and we have a lot of a lot of wildlife here where I live in upstate. We see bears in our yard. The first time I ever saw a freaking bear outside of a zoo was in my backyard. I was half asleep <laughs> with my coffee just sort of zoned you know, like first thing in the morning you're sort of sipping your coffee, you're like half dead, sort of zoned out. I was staring out my side witch window in my kitchen and there was this big brown thing laying in between these two bushes in my yard and I'm like like this there's no bush there and then it just sort of got up and sauntered away it was a goddamn giant bear <laughs> and and I knew they were you know they actually have a a legal bear hunt in New Jersey because they have to keep the population down because it's so hot and uh you know we see bears in the yard all the time little mother will lounge out in the backyard and the babies kind of saunter past my driveway and and there is supposed to be in some of the literature and I think even um I think Meldrum I'll bring up Meldrum a lot in our discussion because he's one of the few legit people that I follow all the time mm-hmm. but uh I think he's even talked about there being kind of a uh, overlap in terms of habitat with bears and sasquatch because potentially something like a Sasquatch would need a similar environment as a bear in terms of resources. If you, if you follow the thread that they would probably have to be an omnivore Mm -hmm. or a um, opportunistic feeder, like a bear is like here, bears eat just about everything. They eat roadkill. The biggest pain in the ass is they knock the frigging garbage cans over and make a mess. One of them, one of my friends stopped over one day, middle of the afternoon came into the studio, we were dicking around in here with whatever, and he leaves like half an hour later, in my garbage, a bear had come into the garage, squeezed past my truck, dragged the garbage can out, thrown it all over the freaking driveway, never scratched my truck though, never made a noise. Wow. You know, and 
Because I, I know it wasn't a raccoon because raccoons are really noisy. They don't give a crap who hears it. So technically, the area I live in, there would be an overlap with something like a Sasquatch. But there's also a high-density population in the immediate area. So this whole roundabout nonsensical story I'm telling. Um, <laughs> one night, middle of the night, we have all the windows open. It's in the summer. And I heard a sound, like right behind my studio, there's a little ravine, a little ravine that's maybe 50 feet across, and there's a stream going down the center. So this ravine goes down at about a 60-degree angle down to the stream. So, uh, you know, like bears and other animals, they kind of use it as a trackway because you can't see it from the properties behind all the houses because it's inset. So in the middle, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 o'clock at night, I heard a sound back there that sounded like the sound that like apes make, you know, like this gorilla kind of hooting sound like a pant hoot kind of thing almost. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm familiar with owls because there's one that takes up residence in the tree out in front of our house and just hoots his little heart out for hours in the summer. So I'm, I'm used to the sound of owls. This wasn't an owl. This sounded like a gorilla. And I heard this sound and just like the hair on the back of my neck just went up. And I talked to one of my friends who lives, she lives a couple miles away and she would have bears, a mother bear and two babies would come into her yard every night. The mother would come into the yard. She would have the babies scamper up this tree next to my friend's house and stay up there. Then the mother would go around and knock over all the garbage cans on the street. She would do this every, every week around, like, garbage night, you know. And uh, then she'd come back, and she would make this sound that I heard, and the babies would come back down the tree. That was the sound that she would that mother bears would make to call the babies back to them. Huh. So right there, that was like, you know, obviously I wasn't thinking gorilla or Bigfoot when I heard this sound, but it creeped me the hell out. And when I talked to my friend, she was like, yeah, I've heard that sound. That's mama bears calling the babies down because I've seen her do it, you know. So right there, I mean, that's the type of stuff that people have to make themselves aware of, you yeah. know, like, you know, that's, that's what, like, uh, the NAWC guys, Meldrum, anybody half their, worth half their salt talks about familiarizing yourself with animal spore, whether it's tracks, you know, if you find, you know, people love talking about feces and hair samples. You know, if you find feces, look at what's in it. If you, if there's, depending on what's in it, like berries or whatever, then you got bears. There's a, a bear took a friggin' monster dump in my driveway like a month ago and you knew what it was because it was like all you know berries and stuff like that that they like to eat you know plus you knew it wasn't a dog unless it was the dog of size of friggin you know beast of bray road (laughs) (laughs) so i mean there's all those all those aspects of things that you need to know about i'm actually i will be going out into the field for the first time with uh with Jeff and uh, I think it's the, the guy from the Ohio Night Stalkers. Yeah, yeah, Jeff's been doing there. that a lot. He's... Where he's, he's been going out with those guys. And so uh, I guess after the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, we're going to go to some area they like to go up and do. So uh, I'll be interested to see, you know, I mean, just the trip of going out there. I mean, I'm, I've am i been in the woods alone at night. Like when I, I don't know, like 25 years ago or so, I got into Wicca, that's my chosen religion so at this point i'm sort of a lapsed wiccan mm-hmm. rather than a lapsed christian anymore but what i used to do is i used to go into the woods in a there was kind of a small canyon across the street from my old house in upstate new york and i used to go across the street and i'd light incense and i would meditate in this canyon in the dark and you would hear all sorts of weird things that would freak you out like the deer would smell the incense. They would know you were there, and they would do that kind of frantic scamper that they do, yeah. like run really fast and then stop, run really fast and stop, and squirrels, and you'd hear birds and stuff. And it, it's creepy. So, you know, I talked to one of the guys from that, and uh, I was like, so I'm not really sweating getting pummeled by a Bigfoot, but you guys, <laughs> you guys pack some heat in case there's bears or uh, mountain lions. <laughs> and they're like, like, yeah, we bring a full kit. It's like, okay, good. It's pretty cool. I'm not really worried about getting 
not worried about getting dragged off in a sleeping bag or something. We'll, we'll definitely working. have to uh, get back with you and talk to you after you've gone out with them, see what happened. Yeah. Hey, everybody, this is Chris, and we are going to make that the end of part one of our interview with Gene. We will put part two up here in a couple shows where we dig a little deeper into the Patterson-Gimlin footage and see what Gene has to say about that. But until then, you can always find Paranormal Guys at paranormalguys.com. You can go there to listen to the show, see some pictures, send us an email, all kinds of groovy things. And you can always go on over to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash paranormalguys. And please, give us a like there. And while you're at it, if you listen to the show on anything where you can give us a review or any kind of rating, go ahead and do that for us. Let us know how we're doing. One other thing you could do is go to William Blanchard's Facebook page. He is the gentleman that supplies all the music for the show. And this is normally where Chad would say musical genius, which he is. And you can find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash William Blanchard Soundtrack. And as always, have a paranormal weeks. Businesses are you looking for? Oh, screw you, Siri.